Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Frown. Holly, do you know what I did this weekend? I do, but tell me again. I went to Edna St. Vincent Malay's house. I'm so jealous. It's pretty awesome. Uh, so a lot of people have asked us to talk about Edna St. Vincent Millay on the podcast. She was a poet and a playwright and a generally fantastic character. Oh, so interesting. And she definitely has like, there's a cult of personality thing with her. People just adore her, even while acknowledging her flaws. Well, and when she was alive, people adored her sometimes to their own detriment. I, uh, I know I mentioned to you when we were first talking about this subject that I had a high school teacher that clearly just loved her and I um, he would literally show like a slideshow and whenever she would come up in this particular lecture there would just be a pause or he would just sigh and go Vincent and just gawk at her for a minute we all felt uncomfortable but also charmed right (laughs) so uh, you can go to her home which was called Steepletop and you can take a tour of the grounds and a tour of the house which is what I did And we're going to talk more about that part in the second part of this two-part episode, because as sometimes happens... There's a lot. There's a lot, and it it blossomed into something that required two parts to talk about. So today's episode, we're going to go from, you know, Edna St. Vincent Millay is born um, until she gets married. Like, that's going to be today's episode. Yeah. And then the next episode will cover the remainder of her life. Uh, She... I would put her into the larger-than-life category for pretty much the entirety of that. For sure. Uh, She definitely, you know, was an extraordinary person in many ways. Yes. In the truest sense of that word. (laughs) Yes. So, known as Vincent to her family and friends, Edna St. Vincent Millay was born on February 22nd, 1892, in Rockland, Maine. And while her mom was pregnant... Her uncle almost died, and doctors at St. Vincent's Hospital saved his life, and that is where her middle name came from. And Vincent was the oldest of three daughters of Cora and Henry Millay. Cora and Henry actually divorced when Vincent was young. Uh, Cora threw Henry out of the house in 1901, and for years, his involvement in the girls' lives was really quite limited. Uh, It was pretty much just letters and occasionally a little bit of money. Uh, More often, it was letters that said he would be sending them some money soon, but the money... Either wasn't there yet, or he didn't have it in hand. Yeah, there was a lot of, I'm making money, but I haven't gotten paid yet, kind of yeah. language. So according to Cora's letters and witness testimony at the divorce proceedings, Henry was abusive, and he also gambled the family's money away. One of Vincent's biographers, Nancy Milford, also suggests that Cora may have had an affair that kind of prompted her to actually end the marriage instead of continuing to soldier on through it. Cora was skilled as a hair weaver, and she also studied nursing. And to support herself and the girls, she found work as a private nurse. But this work actually kept her away from the family, sometimes for weeks at a time. And at first, uh, they were dependent on relatives to look after the girls while Cora worked. But setback after setback sort of kept them unable to really get on their feet. When she was nine, Vincent and her sisters almost died of typhoid. And they survived because Cora nursed them all through it. Not long after she got her divorce from Henry, Cora also herself got a flu that was so severe that her brother arranged life insurance for her. If you're wondering, it was not the Spanish flu. It was too early for that. 
Um, Vincent's youngest sister, Kathleen, also got polio and then had ongoing neurological problems afterward. Uh, and no matter where they were, for many years of Vincent's childhood, the family was sort of constantly struggling. There were kitchen floors that flooded and then froze over when it was both rainy and cold. They kind of made lemonade out of lemons in that situation because the girls would ice skate on the floors. Uh, at one point, they couldn't afford coal to heat their house, and they resorted to supplementing a load of it that Cora's sister gave them as a gift with shingles that they ripped from a derelict house that was next door. Yeah, Cora would like climb up and rip these shingles off and throw them across the fence for the girls to go and pick up. Uh, finally, Cora found the right combination of housing and work. It was a rundown house in Camden, Maine, where they could get a break on the rent if they helped fix it up, and she got nursing work nearby. The house was in pretty terrible condition, and they were in debt right from the beginning, but Vincent's life at this point finally started to have a little bit of stability. And it also had a lot of work. Uh, when Cora was away, which, of course, was often and for long periods of time, Vincent was in charge. And this wasn't like a don't just make sure that your sisters don't starve sort of in charge. She was really running the household. She managed the budget. She saw to all the cooking and the chores. And she looked after her younger sisters from the time she was about 12. And she was so exhausted from all of this work, because that is a great deal to ask of a child, uh, that she ended up getting sick about once a month. So their existence was really frugal, but it gradually moved toward a sort of semblance of a middle-class living. Cora sometimes seemed resentful of how much the girls were spending on things like beans to eat and dresses to wear to school, but they also had, thanks to her, a life that was really rich in literature and music. The family got musical instruments for the girls to play, and Vincent learned to play the piano. And Cora also developed an immense library. Uh, it was actually recognized as the biggest and best one in the area. There were volumes and volumes of books. They were full of plays. There was verse. And Cora made sure her daughters read the work of masters. Vincent learned to read by reading poetry. And this library was as important to her young work as a poet and a writer as anything that she learned in school. Before we get to her school years, let's take a minute for a word from a sponsor. And now back to Malay. So, at school, Vincent was stubborn and brilliant. She was very responsible at home. She was looking after everything. But at school, she was willful and disobedient. When she was in the eighth grade, she talked back to her teacher, who was in the habit of calling her any other woman's name that started with a V instead of Vincent. And so when he did this one day and she insisted that Vincent was her name, her teacher was so fed up with her that he threw a book at her. That would probably not fly today. There would be some police in, involvement. No. Uh, and thanks to her mother's intervention, Vincent was allowed to skip directly to high school rather than having to stay in the class with the teacher that she had such a contentious relationship with. Yeah. He, he had pretty much said, you've been ruling this school for too long. <laughs> she started publishing poetry in a children's magazine called St. Nicholas in 1906 when she was about 14. And a year later, she won the magazine's highest prize. Her prize-winning poem, called The Land of Romance, wound up being reprinted in the Camden Herald and then uh, anthologized in the journal Current Literature. So people were already, from the age of you know 15, spotting that she was really gifted as a poet. And she also started to pursue acting more seriously, and that was something that she took to very naturally. 
and she wasn't just doing this in school plays. She actually started uh, acting at the Camden Opera House starting in 1907, and that would require her to rehearse every night. And that is, keep in mind, on top of her schoolwork and all the work that came with basically being the head of household in terms of uh, all of their domestic needs and taking care of her sisters. So kind of a packed schedule. Yeah, she was she worked herself to the bone all the time. So during her high school years, uh, Vincent started writing in her diary about sort of conflicted crushes. She wanted to be loved and to be in love. But at the same time, she kind of felt like a boy would just hold her back. She had things to do. And a boy was going to get out in the way of that. I can understand that I'm, mindset. I feel you, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are of one heart. Uh, while she was popular with the girls, the boys in high school, not so much. Uh, she was very smart, as we've mentioned. She was really headstrong and she was really haughty, and that rubbed them the wrong way. That was a bit much for teenage boys to take in. Yeah, probably in a story that's familiar to women still today. Eventually, Vincent would grow up and she would become famous for her love poems and she would have a whole string of lovers who fell absolutely, deeply, passionately in love with her. But in high school... Even when the boys did start to pursue her, they mostly just tried to make her miserable. Uh, during her senior year, she wanted to write the class poem. Poetry was already deeply important to her, and writing the class poem was an enormous honor. And she was clearly the best poet in the class. There really would not appear to be any question about who should uh, write this and that the honor should go to her. But a group of boys who had made it their business to torment her... Uh, they interrupted her whenever she talked. They taunted her and they just sort of ganged up on her. Uh, these boys all banded together to nominate a classmate who was actually a terrible writer to run against her. She was distraught and so humiliated that she pulled out of the race. Her mother suggested that she deliver her commencement essay in verse, which she did. And this was poor consolation because it wasn't the honor that she had wanted. But it did kind of let her get the last word in a way. She kind of love. Uh, after graduation, she could not afford to go to college. So she stayed home and she actually took on even more work running the household so that her mother could spend more time uh, with her nursing work. And she was very lonely. She still deeply wanted to be loved. And she started conducting this sort of uh, ritual seance in her room every night to try to summon a dream lover to her. Yeah, this was a, a thing that went on repeatedly for a while uh, until she actually made some changes in her life. Um, in February of 1912, when she was 20, Vincent got word that her father was dying. And at this point, she and her sisters had not seen him for 11 years. But she went to Kingman, Maine to look after him. And when she arrived, the doctor told her that Henry was probably only going to live a few days at most. But while Vincent was there, he actually defied expectations and he started to get better. Vincent stayed with the doctor who was taking care of her father, and she started this passionate and passionately physical relationship with Ella Somerville, who was the daughter of the doctor. That's whose home she was staying at. This relationship and their trip seemed to really revive Vincent, who at that point had really gotten just exhausted and burned out on everything from, you know, trying to write to running the household to all of the things that had gone on in school. And when she got home, she went right back to writing poetry. And within a few months, she finished her very long, very exuberant poem, Renaissance, which she had started before she left. 
At her mother's encouragement, she submitted Renaissance to publisher Mitchell Kennerly, who was holding a writing contest. On July 19, 1912, she got word that it had been accepted to the Lyric Year, which was the anthology that was to be published of the best entries. So this was sort of news that she was in the running for one of the three cash prizes that would go to the top three in the contest. And what followed was a flirtatious correspondence between Vincent, who at first thought she was talking to Mitchell Kennerly himself, and an editor who thought E. Vincent must have been a man. It turned out that the person that she was writing to was Ferdinand Earle, and their letters escalated until his wife found one of them, and it began to undo his marriage. It turned out that he was writing to other entrants and making them promises as well. So there was definitely some shady business going on with Ferdinand Earl. Yeah. When he realized that she was a woman, she sent a picture and it just it got really racy and it didn't wind up going well for anyone in the situation. So along the way, um, along the way, Ferdinand Earl had basically implied to Vincent that she was going to win one of the cash prizes. And when she didn't, she was crushed, and her family really desperately needed the money. And the fact that she came in fourth place was no consolation to her, nor was the fact that when the book came out, there was a specific mention of her poem like in the editor's note at the beginning. None of that really made up for the fact that she needed that money and didn't get it. Uh, when the Lyric Year was published, it made huge waves in the literary community. Letters poured in from writers and poets who insisted that the judges had, in fact, made a huge mistake and that Renaissance was clearly the very best thing in it. It's kind of unclear exactly why, uh, given this unanimous outpouring that Vincent didn't place in the contest. I mean, it, it really, to the entire literary community, seemed like an obvious and boneheadedly stupid maneuver. Um it's possible that she was her own undoing through her flirtation with one of the judges and his consequently his wife finding out about it. It's also possible that her sex played a big role. The three other winners were all men, and the grand prize winner, Oric Johns, called the award, quote, unmerited and said that Vincent's poem was obviously the best thing in the book. In the end, though, it all actually worked out for the best. Uh, getting Renaissance published in the Lyric Year brought all manner of attention to Vincent, including from many prominent poet- poets whose work was also featured in the book. And the spotlight on her was even brighter because so many people felt like she'd been robbed. So she kind of, though she did not get the cash prize, she really got all the attention. Right. And before we talk about the awesome things that attention led her to, brief moment for a word from a sponsor. Super duper. So one of the most amazing things about Renaissance, besides the fact that everyone was completely shocked that a woman and a young woman at that had written it, was that at this point, Vincent was almost entirely a self-taught poet. Her public education had been pretty poor in quality, and she had had no college instruction at all. Not long after the poem was published, Vincent gave a reading of it at a hotel where her sister worked. And in the audience was Caroline Dow, an executive director of the YWCA, who thought that Vincent could go to college and she knew wealthy patrons who could help her do it. So Vincent got a scholarship to Vassar. But because her high school education had been so terrible, she needed to take some sort of remedial classes to get her knowledge up enough to pass the entrance exams. So after doing some coursework at Barnard College to get ready, she started Vassar in the spring of 1913. 
And at Vassar, she was vastly popular. Uh, she had a series of sometimes overlapping romantic relationships with classmates, including Catherine Filene and Catherine Tilt, uh, who she sometimes played against one another so that she could make the other jealous. Uh, and she came to be known as the Sappho of North Hall. At the same time, she was carrying on an ongoing affair with her editor, Arthur Hooley, and a shorter one with Nicaraguan poet Salomon de la Selva. Uh, in part, that one was also to try to make Hooley jealous. In one of his many, many beautiful love letters to her, de la Selva described her as, quote, a willful princess, loved of many, loving some. Man, who wouldn't want to have things like that written about them. But yeah, there there is an enormous <laughs> body of letters both by her and about her and to her and and they're lovely. A lot of them are by me, like exceptionally gifted writers that she was involved with and so there's this whole beautiful body of love love letters to Edna St. Vincent Millay <laughs> existing in various places about the world. And on top of writing and starring in plays, wooing so many of her classmates, and of course, actually attending classes and studying, while in college, Vincent broke all kinds of rules. Uh, had she not been such a prodigiously talented poet, and already quite famous, she probably would have been expelled. She had, in the words of the dean, quote, a culmination of disregard for college rights. She even got suspended the week before graduation uh, because she was supposed to be confined to campus for having broken previous rules, and she left. And uh, even though she had written two of the songs and a whole lot of other material that was going to be used in the graduation ceremony, she was going to be prohibited from walking across the stage. She was only allowed to graduate with her class after her mother wrote a letter in her defense and the rest of the student body, like hundreds of them, I mean, uh, not, not, not half of them, but approaching half, uh, petitioned and protested. And on top of her coursework and her incredible love life and her social life, she managed to keep writing this whole time. And most of what was in her first book, Renaissance and Other Poems, was written while she was at Vassar. And in spite of all her hell-raising while she was there, she um, had managed to arrange a scholarship for her sister Kathleen to attend the college as well. So she was out doing all kinds of wild and crazy things and partying and having life adventures. But she was also, like, taking care of business the whole time. Uh-huh. After graduating, she moved to New York City. She was hoping to continue her work as a writer while also making a name for herself in the world of theater. Eventually, her sister Norma moved in with her also, and the two of them shared an apartment. And this was such a vastly different world from Camden, where they had been growing up, and, you know, even from Vassar. The two of them practiced swearing while doing their their needlework so that they could get used to it. <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> I mean, most people swear doing needlework is something goes wrong or they stab themselves. But no. I sort of love the idea that they're they were really practicing doing saying, the things concurrently. Yeah, they were practicing <laughs> saying bad words while while doing needlework. So charming. Uh, the two young women had very little money. And when their mother heard that they were living without any sort of heat, she decided that she would move down there herself. She brought with her a pound of tobacco and a quart of gin for her daughters. Uh, Cora lived in Greenwich Village with her daughters for two years, uh, and that was from eight, 1918 to 1920. She looked after them, but tried not to get in the way of their very bohemian lifestyle, which was full of writing and drinking and parties. Vincent's income came from writing and acting and gifts from her many friends. At first, this was really slow going. I mean, she had established that she was very gifted, but she was sending poems off to journals and getting rejections back. 
She really persevered, though, and eventually she was getting published in Vanity Fair. Her Vanity Fair editor, Edmund Wilson, would eventually propose to her, and she would turn him down. She had a way with editors. She had a way with getting proposed to you. <laughs> While living in Greenwich, Vincent finally met poet Arthur Fickey, who she had been corresponding with since Renaissance was published in the Lyric Year. And he was about to go off to war. They carried on a relationship in letters and sonnets and later in person that would go on for years. It's it's hard to say who the love of Edna St. Vincent Millay's life was. I really feel like she had several mm-hmm. and, and he was one of them. In 1919, Vincent finished what's considered to be her greatest play, Aria de Capo, which broke box office records and went on to be performed all over the world. She continued to act in plays until the 1920s when her writing career started to actually overtake her acting work. So uh, one of Vincent's most quoted bits, bits of verse, which if you have heard anything about her, you probably have heard, is about burning one's candle at both ends. And that's really how she spent her life in the village. She would just drive herself to exhaustion on work and drink and love. And then she would have to take to her bed. She would faint or she would collapse and somebody would have to come look after her. When she finally left the village bound for Europe, she was just completely drained physically and emotionally. And while in Europe, she traveled and she wrote and she became increasingly ill with an ongoing stomach problem. Uh, her family tried to convince her to seek medical care, but she refused. And Cora finally went to Europe herself to try to nurse her. She had seen Arthur Fickey a few times in Europe also, and about the same time, As her mother came to look after her, she got the news that Arthur, who she had really hoped she might get married to one day, had divorced his wife. But also part of the same news was that he had also met someone else, Gladys Brown, who he would later marry. Vincent headed back to the States in January of 1923, and she headed back to the village. Uh, Her mother went back to Maine, having gotten discouraged with her inability to get Vincent to see a doctor for her stomach problems. Everybody was really at the seriously go to the doctor point. Like, it was alarming, everyone. That year at a house party, she ran into Eugene Boisivan. So I'm going to just say we had a lively discussion uh, in the visitor center at Steepletop about whether it's Boisivan or Boisivain. So uh, we sort of settled on Boisivan. Yeah. Yeah. So she uh, she ran into Eugene Boisavan, who she'd met briefly at a previous house party in 1918. The 1923 party was a pretty awkward one for Vincent. A lot of the guests were former lovers of hers who were in attendance with their wives. And her stomach was also really bothering her. Eventually. I mean, she uh, was one to have many loves. I would think if you traveled in her social circle... It would be hard for her not to be crossing paths with a lot of people she had been romantically linked to. Yeah, they just all happened to be at the same party because a lot of this was from the, the Greenwich Village time. And her hosts, in an effort to try to cheer Vincent up, decided to play a sort of improv game. And Vincent and Eugene were tapped to improvise a scene about two lovers. But it was obvious to everyone that there was some actual real chemistry between them and their relationship started immediately. Eugen was a widower who was born in Amsterdam. His first wife, Inez Milholland, was another Vassar graduate and an activist for women's suffrage. Vincent had actually met Inez while in school. Eugen's marriage to Inez had not lasted for very long because only three years in, she collapsed during a speech that she was giving and died shortly thereafter. After she died, Eugen moved to the village and started an import business. And meeting Eugen at that house party in 1923... 
very likely saved Vincent's life. He got her to finally do the thing that everyone else had been unsuccessful in attempting to get her to do, which was see a doctor. And sort of a side note, uh, right as all this was going on in April of that year, Vincent learned that she had been awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. So a very heady time in her life. Extremely. And not long after, uh, doctors decided Vincent's stomach problems, which are theorized today to be Crohn's disease, uh, were going to require surgery. And she wanted to marry Eugen before the procedure in case something went wrong. So they got married on the morning of July 18th, 1923, outside the home of a friend. Vincent's veil was a huge length of mosquito netting that her sister had found on a porch. <laughs> <laughs> There are pictures, there are wedding pictures in the visitor center at Steepletop, and they're very striking because they're black and white pictures, um, and, and she's wearing a dress, I don't remember what the actual color of it is, but it's dark in the picture, everybody's wearing dark clothing, uh, is how it comes across in this black and white picture, with this just enormous volume of white veil netting um, flowing down behind her. So Arthur Fickey and Gladys Brown were both there, and Vincent's sister Norma and her husband, Eugen borrowed the cook's ring. Her name was Hattie. Uh, when he realized that he had accidentally misplaced Vincent's. Whoops. Uh, Vincent went in for th- surgery that evening. And during the procedures, the doctors essentially rebuilt her intestines uh, because membranes and adhesions had made them completely dysfunctional. And once Vincent recovered from uh, surgery, Eugen took her on a honeymoon around the world. They traveled all over the place. They're... Uh, there are souvenirs um, from China that they brought back with them in, their, in the home at Steepletop, uh, which seems like a very happy place to pause until we come back to the story in the next episode. Yeah, we'll enjoy this happy part. Yeah. Well, there's more happy parts still to come. Yeah. But, you know, if you want a 100%, maybe not 100%, if you want a really happy ending for this story, uh, maybe put off listening to part two. <laughs> Don't really put off listening to part two. There's a lot of, of awesome stuff that is still going to happen in her life. Yeah. But, um, but there, there is also some trouble to come down the road. Yeah. Uh, we will also talk a lot more about Steepletop um, in the next episode because it, it became, uh, it was where she lived for the last many years of her life. And it, a lot of it is like an extension of her personality, um, which is not really surprising. When you have somebody cool. who puts a lot into the home that they live in. Yeah. Very cool. Do you also have listener mail? That I do. Uh, this is from Anne Marie. And Anne Marie says, I just listened to your latest podcast. Uh, and it made me think a lot about a book I read recently for my book club called The Child Catchers, Rescue Trafficking and the New Gospel of Adoption by Catherine Joyce. It's a well-researched and important book that goes into many of the problems that plague international adoption today. While many, if not most, people who adopt internationally have only the best of, atten- of, of intentions, there are people involved in the process who use the demand for children to make money, and there are people who adopt in order to convert children rather than to help them. So, uh, since I didn't say clearly before, uh, this came following our Orphan Trains episode. Mm-hmm. To go on with the letter... One important thing the book discusses is how certain segments of the adoption community have rallied around claiming that there are many millions of orphans in the world. The number they use is one from UNICEF that actually includes children who've only lost one parent and children who've lost both parents but still have relatives who can support them, who we would never think should be taken away from a family in the United States. 
Often this belief that there are so many children in need of adoption collides with reality and potential adoptive parents are shocked at wait times and demand legal reform to speed up the process, which puts these children's lives even more in jeopardy of dangerous adoptions. The author shares stories of parents who think their children are going to be students in the U.S. or who who are shamed into thinking that they need to do what's best by giving up their children. In many countries, orphanages are used as temporary assistance for parents when times are tough and parents are shocked when they return for their children and they've been adopted out abroad. One group that is doing good work is Parents for Ethical Adoption Reform. Adoption isn't the problem in itself, it's how it's implemented because it can easily go so wrong. All my best, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Anne-Marie, for writing this letter to us. Um, I actually, my cousin and his wife spent a year of their life in newlyweds in a country, I'm not going to say what country it is in case this is wrong, uh, they were living and working at an orphanage, um, and that's a country that's shut down international op- adoption uh, within the last couple of uh, decades because of a lot of the issues like these that come up. Yeah. Um, and they were like, we we need to s- stop contributing uh, to this as a problem. We didn't really go into, in the Orphan Train episode, uh, a lot of the problems that do continue to plague the ado- adoption and foster care systems today. Yeah. Uh, they definitely are present. Yeah, both in the U.S. and abroad. I mean, there are problems everywhere. It's a very difficult issue. Yeah. Yeah, like you, you hear some horror stories sometimes about um, people who effectively like round up children and take them mm-hmm. to another city to be adopted to somebody who lives abroad, which is uh, heartbreaking and terrible. So we were not intending to gloss over that. It just wasn't quite part of what we were talking about in that particular episode. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's the sad part to temper the lots of happy things that just happened to Edna St. Vincent Millay whose story we will continue in our next episode. Yes. If you would like to write to us, we have a slightly new email address. It is historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash history, and our Twitter is history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com, and we're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. Our website is mistinhistory.com, and if you would like to learn a little more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent website, which is howstuffworks.com, and put the word poetry in the search bar, and you will find how poetry works. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 